not only does the subject anticipate, but it conserves itself. That is, it reacts, whether by instinct or by invention, to every part of the given. Here again, the fact is that the given never joins together its separate elements into a whole. In short, as we believe and invent, we turn the given itself into a nature. At this point, Hume's philosophy reaches its ultimate point. Nature conforms to being. Human nature conforms to nature, but in what sense? Inside the given, we establish relations and we form totalities. But the latter do not depend on the given, but rather on the principles we know. They are purely functional. And the functions agree with the hidden powers on which the given depends. Although we do not know these powers, we call purposiveness disagreement between intentional finality and nature. This agreement can only be thought, and it is undoubtedly the weakest and emptiest of thoughts. Philosophy must constitute itself as the theory of what we are doing, not as a theory of what there is. What we do has its principles, and being can only be grasped as the object of a synthetic relation with the very principles of what we do. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violence because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we begin today's discussion, we just want to mention we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a buck a month there, but if not, it'd be great if you could leave us an awesome review on iTunes. We'll give you a shout out in the following week's episode if you do. Taylor and I are really excited to take a look at Deleuze's monograph on David Hume this week. The title is Empiricism and Subjectivity, an Essay on Hume's Theory of Human Nature. I guess, first of all, what is your uh, sort of, do you have like a basic general thought on the text overall? I know you said you had never done much other than sort of, I guess, yeah, just take, through take it. little nibbles of the of the text before. Yeah, I just consulted it when I needed to, uh, usually from like a footnote or something like that. So no, I, I had never really um, read the book cover to cover like we did this week. It is interesting. I mean, um, some of the things that I thought we could start with was a little bit of the biographical sleuthing I did today. For Hume, I imagine? Actually, no, this just is... for Deleuze? Yeah, this is Deleuze. Now, I will say, in terms of the book, in terms of the book that Deleuze is looking at, he's looking at... Hume's first book that he published when he was like, or he was writing when he was like 24, 25. I think that's when he published it. So real young whippersnapper there, the treatise on human nature, right? And he will write another book much shorter because the treatise on human nature is about 400 pages, much shorter book called Inquiry into the Human Understanding. And that's usually right, what, yeah. what is referred to. That's about 100 pages. And he even says in his little preface, Hume says that, you know, uh, the treatise was a little... It was this 
excess of youth, right? It, it's, you know, he's tried to like trim down the argument, get rid of some of the skeptical paradoxes and yada, yada. But what's interesting is Deleuze barely, I think he references it maybe once or twice, the inquiry. He sticks to the treatise. And one of the reasons for that is the treatise on human nature was first translated in full in French in 1946. In 47, Deleuze attends a course given by Jean Hippolyte, one of his professors, on Hume. And this is because in 46, with that translation of the treatise, one of the thinkers on the aggregation, right, which is the exam you have to take to be a, uh, to become a teacher in France, was Hume. Hume was put on the docket and he stayed on the docket for about 12 years, interestingly enough, right? And so... You know, with this translation, with this course, with this having to study Hume more or less in full, this gave Deleuze all the the impetus and the material to have written a book on Hume. Now, what's interesting too, though, is I think Hume is is being used for Deleuze. Obviously, as you said, there's a lot of later Deleuze that we can see in this early one. But you know, it's interesting that Hume is kind of Deleuze's way of intervening in some problems of phenomenology that was very, you know, current at the time. So he's trying to go around the post-Kantians, if you will, because obviously I think it's a chapter five where, or maybe chapter four where Kant gets brought up, right? And empiricism and, or rationalism on the other hand, and empiricism versus what transcendental philosophy. Right. Yeah. 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 And rationalism, you know, uh, which we can talk about later. But in any case, so Hume is intervening in a kind of way, even though phenomenology isn't really brought up, except it's maybe like mentioned in passing, if you will, in the final chapter on finality or what Bundes translates as purposiveness, which is a kind of more Kantian, less Aristotelian, less phenomenological way of translating it. I would have just translated it as finality because what Deleuze is talking about are ends. Finality or finitude? Fin finality. Or, okay, gotcha. Yeah, finality. Because Deleuze is talking about ends. He's talking about goals, which in, in right, yeah. uh, which in French is, is fine, right? Which makes and sense, any, uh, given you know mm -hmm. Hume, one of Hume's primary, I guess, focuses, or at least early on, is like the bringing into question our presuppositions regarding causality yep right exactly in any case so i think hume is 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 a way also for deleuze not only to do a non-phenomenological theory of the constitution of the mind right because mm -hmm. we're gonna we're gonna be talking about with hume this new thing where you can't do a psychology of the mind the mind is is kind of to a certain extent is what happens to it and I think you got to that in the, to a certain extent, you get to that in that last paragraph that you just read as the cold yeah. open. It's about... Well, it kind of um, makes sense in this, in terms of, you know, we're not really in charge of, we're always being flooded with sensory perceptions, right? Mm -hmm. Not by choice. Right. We're invaded, so to speak. So The mind isn't predetermined by some god or some a priori synthesis. Again, going around Kant... Hume is going to be used, as I said, not just against phenomenology, but also intervening in these two debates, in this debate, if you will, between two of uh, Deleuze's teachers, John Wall, who is 
kind of favoring transcendence. He'll coin terms like transcendence and eminence, which is which you see throughout continental philosophy. Right. He also coins these terms transcendence and transdescendence. And he's kind of uh, he even wrote a book on Anglo-American philosophy that was very popular. He's kind of an adherent of William James, and I think that's why Hume is. Even though he doesn't really talk about Hume in his writings, John Wall is at least gives a nod to Hume as a precursor to William James, this kind of pluralist uh, philosophy. But Deleuze will obviously try to undermine the role of transcendence, as we see, especially in the later works, right? The other thinker, Hippolyte, is you know, translated Hegel, Hegel's uh, phenomenology and the, and the, science, uh, the logic of science. Or the science of logic, I apologize. Um, <laughs> and he wrote a book called Logic and Existence, which came out in 52, so a year before Deleuze wrote his little book on Hume, but probably too near it to, to be talked about, although Deleuze will write a review of it in the following years. And obviously, Hippolyte's position is more on the side of eminence, but it's an eminence of the dialectic, right? It's an eminence that moves by way of contradiction, negation, etc., and so kind of Deleuze will skirt the middle path between these two thinkers and um, in a certain sense, given the, I think it's interesting, right, that just this little bit of context helps to sort of give some extra ballast to the fact that Deleuze isn't just writing against the current trends of the time. Because I think to write a book on Hume is, at the time, especially in France, is kind of interesting. It's kind of like his book on Bergson at the time that he wrote it. Bergson had fallen out of fashion. Deleuze has, has always kind of had a little bit of a counter tendency to the dominant trends. And um, certainly writing a, a book on Hume is one of them. But I do think it's important to note how he was figuring as Deleuze was getting an education that Hume was on the docket, as I said, for the exam, he took Hippolyte's class on him. Right. And so I think that this is a kind of an interesting side note to writing against the current trends, which would have been phenomenology and Hegel. Hegel would have still been kind of in the, um, in the atmosphere given Hippolyte's translations, but also still, you know, coming the generation after the one with Sartre, Lacan, et cetera, who were influenced by Kojeb's lectures right. on Hegel, blah, blah, blah. There is a sense in which Hegel is not yet the purported enemy in the text, but you can see that empiricism versus transcendental idealism would entail Hegel in the background, right? It's kind of hard for Hegel not to be in the background anyway, at least in contemporary philosophy. So yeah, I mean, this book on Hume... It is interesting, and I think that I wish we'd have had more of this polemic, because as I said, this paragraph that you read as a cold open is a kind of polemic, right? It's philosophy is the theory of what we do, right? not, not of what there is. And yeah. it's kind of the same thing he says. This is like echoed later on with like, it's not about what it, you know, what it means, not about representation, yep. it's about what it does, affects, etc. So that was exactly. kind of cool. I mean, exactly. this wasn't the only example of these uh, germinal ideas that her concepts that get fully uh you know show up in the later work let's say and you see a polemic against representation it's not the dominant one right in the text but it's kind of like the elephant in the room though it's like yeah it's it not it's not stated per se but i think if you really kind of uh, investigate you know all, a lot of it is about the powers of the false like you have talked about many times that relationship to representation and the world as it appears 
not the world as it appears to us. We don't have access to the things in themselves and so forth. The world's a fiction, as he says. Exactly. If the world is a fiction, the sort of move would be to create a new fiction. But how do we create a new fiction without understanding what the current fiction... Well, I guess it's... I'm just thinking about like what the current fiction means, you know what I mean? Like to understand... I guess maybe that's the transcendental illusion. Well, I guess there's two things. One, the world is a fiction merely because we don't experience the totality, right? The totality is, is a fiction that we kind of abstract from. Right, we or, impose. Or, or, yeah, exactly. The same reason why Hume thinks that continuity is a fiction. It's a useful one, though, right? It's about right. What, what we do. Utility, and yeah. And that's where I think you're going with it, right? That if the world is a fiction, how then are we to understand this fiction? Because if it is a fiction, if it is an artifice, that means it can be remade. Precisely, that means it yeah. can be rethought differently and we shouldn't think of it as predetermined as though it has a pre-established harmony like in the existing existing under capitalism or something like this, right? Existing yeah. under under the dominant power relations to imply if we forget that the world is a fiction and think of it as governed by the providence of some god, then or you know, it's the punishment for desire or something in a Buddhistic way, right? Like you can imagine then that one's best role would be to just sort of turn away from the world and become a hermit, right? Or something like this, that nothing one does or thinks can be changed. And obviously that's, that's an extreme vision, but you can imagine lesser extremes pervading us with resentment, resentment that, that the world can't be different because there is some, some God giving us reasons for everything, a principle, sufficient reason even and I think this is this is important to bring out up front too, just the context in which Hume was writing, because, you know, Hume, even though Scotland at the time was known as like the Athens of the North, right? And they had a lot of scientific minds and thinkers, the church was still pretty dominant. And I think in Hume's lifetime or a generation beforehand, a student at the University of Edinburgh was was hanged because of some blasphemy speaking blasphemy to other students which who knows what he said he could could have just been a typical atheistic rant who knows you know capital punishment for um speaking heresy or blasphemy it seems medieval but it would it would still been a kind of dominant i mean particularly after the reformation has occurred right I, well that would, i right. guess that would be probably i'm trying to i vaguely remember that up in the 1600s yeah yeah the reformation you know you have you, reformation was what 1515 well you're talking oh, like you're talking about you're talking about the reformation of that's 1517 martin luther, martin luther. yeah martin luther's theses 1517 sorry i thought you were talking about the restoration my bad i was thinking of charles charles II, second yeah well that but that's 1600s but in any case yeah i mean like i just mean to say that some of hume's theses whether it be against god or the belief in immortality you know his stuff about miracles is pretty blasphemous if you think about it because yeah. transubstantiation is supposed to be this sort of common miracle that unites all of us in christ or something right and mm -hmm. makes makes resurrection possible or you know even the resurrection of christ itself is supposed to be this miracle so so hume arguing against miracles and that the only real miracle is is our belief in miracles, right? This kind of interesting <laughs> yeah. move that Deleuze points out, I think mm -hmm. is really cool. That to me is pretty, um, 
brave to be doing at a time when even if the power of the church is waning, it's still kind of the orthodox image of thought that is reigning over these speculations. And right. um, and I know that Hume's book, along with, I know in any case, even if Hume was threatened to be excommunicated by the church, the elders convened and chose not to excommunicate him, but they 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 did hold assembly and consider it. Hume's book was put on, on the banned books list. What is it? The Catholic Church has a running banned books. But a lot of philosophy at the time was too, to be fair. He was skirting with these things. And that's why some of those stuff that only gets published posthumously, like his dialogue on religion, which Deleuze points out is one of the, is like the masterpiece. Even if he really cites the treatise and that's the main focus of this book that we're talking about today, I think what is it, it isn't the first chapter where Deleuze is like, uh, the best thing that Hume wrote was this dialogue on religion, which Hume, Hume thought, hey, if I publish it during my lifetime, it'll be bad for me, you know, and what Hume passes away in 1776. So, you know, the Christian moral image of thought is, and sort of having God be the cause of all things, right, whether it be in like Malbranche or something like this, right, that one billiard ball strikes another and the other ball goes in a certain direction because God makes it happen, right? You can imagine that being some of the most stultifying of thoughts where whenever you ask why, you can answer God. Mm-hmm. And I think that that this is, um, this at least gives some context for why Hume's empiricism, and which he obviously inherits kind of from a tradition of Locke from the previous generation, but radicalizes it in a certain way and simplifies it to a certain degree too. And his skepticism are innovative at the very least, if not, you know, downright blasphemous, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, because if the mind does not have a nature, if the subject is not pre-given and not pre-constituted by some divine force, but happens through these, these laws of association, these principles, blah, 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 one could see how that could lead to a line of thinking that kind of refutes all the received wisdom that we've gained from the authorities, right? So anyway, I know that was a side rant, but I think it's just important for the context of, you know, Hume, Hume's writing these things, even if there is precedent set by someone like Jean Locke. I think even Locke was was kind of flirting with still having this possibility of religion. And in fact, he wrote quite a bit about Christianity. So Hume, I think, radicalizes some of that empiricist lineage and, you know, could have been hanged, I assume. They hanged a student for spouting some some blasphemy at at college. I mean, where else are you really supposed to spout (laughs) blasphemy, if not in university? So it's kind of ironic that I just wanted to mention a little bit of continuity over the last couple of episodes, going back to the episode we did with Dan Smith on the Leibniz book, The Fold, because he was sort of mentioning how in the way that we perceive this sort of continuity of the whole, and that sort of being this kind of illusory thing, we sort of ignore the gaps. If on the one hand... The understanding is meant to, in Hume's sense, right? If the understanding is meant to reflect and is meant to separate things and make things distinct while 
the imagination sort of collects right yeah kind of construct the imagination constructs right so the imagination is the mind considered as an indifferent collection of of entities you know there is a sense in which this notion that continuity is is not something that we can experience to a certain extent and yet we have to like conceive it yeah right we have to we have to like have due to its utility right it's kind of like trying to what trying to like it's the old argument between Parmenides and Heraclitus, right? Like static being or dynamic becoming and sort of choosing to hold the two without contradiction or something like this, right? Or to hold them in their contradiction without resolving them. What really, when I was reading the text and, you know, I was messaging you about this, about kind of the way that this is expressed in film as well, very strongly, because they even refer to like the way that most Hollywood movies are edited as continuity editing. The editing should not be perceived, right? The editing is supposed to sort of smooth over those gaps within our perception. Because we perceive a film, even though it's a series of static images at a certain speed, right? Our, our eyes perceive a continuity, a continuous whole film and we sort of gloss over those gaps we're sort of they're not necessarily legible to us Mm -hmm. as we experience the film and even someone like myself who has experience on the production side i can still sit and enjoy a film i can watch it and even though i know like i have a certain type of knowledge what what would that be would that be uh is that a posteriori or whatever the fuck (laughs) you wouldn't know a priori that that film works that way even though i have the knowledge i have the like logical reason i've reasoned out that a film is is a fiction it is a a fake or we something it's a series of discontinuities that we perceive as unified whole even though i can know that intellectually the perception of the film is not impacted by Mm. that knowledge directly now that's a little squishy right because you can like I, there are times i think in particularly when it's shot reverse shot editing where i will notice like that's something that kind of will take me out of the film mm. but yeah yeah overall i mean that's just like a very tiny that's kind of the exception that proves the rule you know because it sort of stands out but in like most other things you know that stuff gets kind of glossed over even for someone like me now if you're not even on the production side obviously it's a lot easier to sort of allowed the perception to kind of wash over you and feel the sort of unity and then we're so ingrained with that that whenever a film doesn't do that it's shocking and sort of dissatisfying when a film like in the way that art house films will do you know jump cuts shit like that this gets to human obviously Deleuze on Hume. their point that the subject is believing and inventing right right there's an invention in the anticipation of of the fluidity, the continuity of the shots, even if you know through the understanding that these are all separable cuts, you don't enjoy a film by reflecting on it. Yeah. Immediately. Like when you're watching the film, now obviously it's a different type of enjoyment. You can reflect on it, discourse on it, theorize about it. But when you're watching a film, you are believing that this artifice is a continuity, right? You are believing in 
in a certain way, you're, you're doing both at the same time. You're believing and inventing because you are anticipating the fluidity. Right. You yeah. Because you are imagining that those gaps like don't exist within right. the frames, et cetera. It's not even just the picture, you know, that it's a series of photos, right? Like we're talking discontinuity in terms of the time and space of where the film was shot, the number of takes, you know, going back to that right, conversation right, right. with Dan as well there. Yeah. I mean, it's the same way that, that um, one can enjoy wrestling. Like I've said this before, right? right like, yeah, exactly. You are, you can obviously go into it knowing it's predetermined and some of obviously wrestling at its worst brings out that, that fourth wall dimension, right? That you've, you've broken kayfabe and everything is hokey is campy is stupid obviously that can happen and generally does especially more and more these days with the way wrestling is going but in any case there are times when one can believe in the individual a great wrestler as opposed to like a great wrestling match for example which has its own criteria but a great wrestler makes you believe in them even if you know that what they, the majority of what they're doing is simulating combat, you still believe in them as a personality or whatever, right? You believe in their words, and that's part of the magic of it. It's part Which of the magic illustrates of the powers, cinema. both cinema and these two examples bring, you know, into sharp relief the concept that you always talk about, the, the powers of the false. The way we would talk about it, I think, today would be like immersion, right? Yeah. And I, th I think that's one thing. Or suspending, you know, suspended disbelief. Right. As long as one understands the suspension not to necessarily be an, an active thing that's reenacted at each moment, like consciously, because I think that would be the, the point to where part of what's being talked about, where the subject isn't pre-given, there isn't like a transcendental subject as in Kant or something like this, that mm -hmm. that is sort of behind the a priori synthesis, blah, blah, blah. Right. Like Deleuze keeps asking this, like, or keeps stating this, the subject is constituted in the given, right? And I think that that's the way of saying it's through our immersion in experience, it's through our immersion in, what are the three things he says? It's like, uh, we're immersed in what Hume calls the fancy, right? Which is also imagination, which is just the indifferent collection of, of ideas in the mind, which are obviously uh, constituted through experience. But there's also there's the delirium of sort of the the contradictions of the fictions, right? We we are immersed in that delirium where we we know that the sh that the shots are are these cuts, but we immerse ourselves in the uh, we are immersed in the delirium of the continuity of the of the film, and then the due to this sort of conflict, there's sort of an inherent madness in the mind. And this is why I think it's so interesting that for Hume, reason is an instinct, right? Reason is sort of constituted through experience and it's inclined towards interest, towards utility. Chiefly our own, personally, right? Which is why Deleuze kind of puts it out. It's not egoism that is the obstacle to social collectivity. It's, it's our partiality, right? We are naturally sort of instinctively inclined partial to our own not only our own preservation but potentially our own benefits yes sometimes can be detrimental to to others or to the whole i was thinking about this more abstractly as like well he mentioned sympathy at what's what was the deal with sympathy it's the like basis for morality i think mm -hmm. if i'm not mistaken 
And right. so I what I was thinking is that we're more partial to sympathy for those that are in proximity to us within space yes. and time. Yes, exactly. Obviously, our family, our friends, those people that we have proximity to, we are partial to caring more about them than someone on the other side of the world that doesn't come into our perception, into our conscious perception. For Hume and the way that Liz lays it out, sympathy, as you said, has to be sort of extended. You laid it out nicely, right? We Initially, our, our sympathy lies, our partiality lies with ourselves, with our immediate family, right, yeah. with our friends, and it only gradually extends outward. And this is one of the things that, um, this is why I was rewatching the Abbasadere, which is all thankfully on YouTube. It's, it's subtitled. So I, I recommend it to the audience and, and to you as well, Cooper, but, uh, G for gauche, which is left, you know, he's talking about politics on the left. This is where he says some of his famous things like governments aren't leftist, but they should be. But in, in any case, there can't be a leftist Being on government. the left's got nothing to do with governments. Right. And you know, one of the things he says, and one of the reasons that helps to sort of give some credence to this is uh, he sees a few things about left-wing politics. The second of which he says is, is becomings, which I think the Abbasadere is one of its main refrains is, is becoming. Specifically for Deleuze and Guattari, as you know, becoming is, you know, always a becoming minoritarian. The majority doesn't become that majority sets a standard. It doesn't it's not necessarily about obviously quantitative numbers. It's about the standard of which one is supposed to conform. And I think this is why he's saying governments can't be leftist because then they would become a majoritarian standard, and that's a contradiction in terms. But the first thing he says about the way he sees being on the left, as one could say, is that. And he doesn't bring up Hume here, but I'm thinking, I think he's thinking very clearly about Hume. Where Hume is talking about partiality, we normally start with ourselves. We're partial to ourselves, our own well-being, our conatos, our conatus, as uh, we talked about with Spinoza, right? Our own self-preservation, but also our, our own self-benefit, which can come at the cost of others. Um, and then the family, and then extending outward, our friends, our circle of friends. And then maybe we're partial to our city, right? Root for the Braves, Atlanta. And then maybe our state and then our country, right? Jingoism and nationalism, blah, blah, blah. And only then do we get the horizon. And Deleuze says it's different on the left. You, you start at the horizon. Your sympathies start at the horizon and, and then can gradually come closer. So it's, it's interesting that way one, when thinking about partiality and how it, how it is to be extended through reason, through the understanding, in order for a society you know, we live in a society, right? In order for a society to exist, it's the same way that just as sympathy has to be extended, what does he say? Passions are what bring vividness, vividness to ideas, which is kind of the same thing, right? It's amplifying. The passions help to, to amplify the ideas in the mind, presumably to, to animate thinking, right? Which is why I think for Hume and, and for Deleuze, you know, thinking first and foremost, or philosophy first and foremost, should be about what we do. It should be a practical philosophy, which is the, the subtitle of his little book on Spinoza that we did, right? It should be about practice. And I think that's why he says there's, there's no theoretical subject, right? There's only a practical subject, because the passions are what animate thinking, whether it be the, the most lifeless type of transcendental philosophy where we're 
going to circumscribe the passions in it, even attempting to do such a philosophy has an interest, has a motivation coming from somewhere, even if it's in the, the claims of disinterest. So yeah, I, I think that that's, a, that's why habits, we talked about sympathy, we talked about a little bit about belief, but it's, it's the habit of acquiring habits as Deleuze quotes <laughs> Bergson, right? It's that, 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 that sort of defines in a certain way, in a vague way, one could say human nature, right? Is the habit of, of acquiring habits. And I think that's important too, to go to some of these themes about, like we had Gil Morhone on last week. I didn't get a chance to read his book on Deleuze, or sorry, on Leibniz, Hume and Spinoza. But this is one of the, the emphasis on habits, on acquiring habits, and that being a part of our custom habit culture, all of this going into framing how ideas are associated to constitute the mind. All of that is, is unconscious, right? It's only one part of the mind that's specifically conscious for Hume, and that's the understanding, because it reflects. It reflects and thereby corrects ideas, which means that it's not unimportant. Right. But to merely reduce the mind to the understanding, well, first of all, it's a little bit arrogant and, and completely, uh, I think, completely misunderstands how most of us act every day, right? Right. That's a philosopher's dream. That's just a, a kind of naive idealism. But also to reduce the mind to reason. Because, again, this is why it's interesting for, for Hume to make reason into just an aspect of interest and in itself an instinct. That's counter to a lot of traditional philosophy whereby reason would be this contemplative, conscious activity rather yeah. than this unconscious motor. I was going to go back to the way the interest and proximity and egoism and the family and kind of how this even gets a little bit onto the topic of Oedipus to some degree, right? It's our proximity to our family that allows us, I suppose, to have that sympathy and to invest in in whatever those objects of desire i suppose as mm -hmm. libidinally invest in those subjects you're definitely right it's uh which is kind of odd relative to like bringing into question the existence of actual bodies relative to this question of space and time and proximity and interest and and sympathy for others and that being the the sort of driving force behind morality. When you brought up Oedipus, I was just thinking about how, how Deleuze and Guattari say in, that it's only the illegitimate use of the syntheses of connection or, or whatnot, that it's the illegitimate aspect, the sort of exclusive disjunctions, et cetera, et cetera, that create names and persons when really the person of the mother is what, what does he say? Uh, says that uh, what the names slide off like wet stamps to the persons. They don't stick to the persons. When you get to the, when you actually get to the, you know, the realm of desiring machines, when you go to the imminent aspect of the unconscious, the names don't stick to the persons. You have to have this illegitimate usage in order for Oedipus to work at all in order for there be there to be persons you know these constituted global persons like father mommy daddy me the names don't stick to the persons at the at the subrepresentative level at the level of desire so in that sense 
Oedipus is a fiction, but it obviously is a fiction that works. And right, yeah, uh, it has that, that utility that, in a certain sense, right? Well, it has utility in the sense in which I think for Deleuze and Guattari and their and their way of seeing it, it has utility in, in the sense in which it adapts us to the model of capital. It's perfectly fitted for our neurotic mode of of labor and existence. But you are right, though, that obviously those who raise us, the as Freud would say, the mother or her substitute, the father or his substitute, they are the first objects we libidinally invest in Freud's. Right. Incorporate yeah. into our little sort of fantasy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Into our little fictional narrative or right. what have you. So it does make sense then that Oedipus would grow on that ground, but, you know, it's to turn the modern lot of subjectivity in Oedipus and, and make it universal. I think that's at least where Deleuze and Guattari show that to be, um, to be hollow, to be unhistorical, to be pretty damaging. And in a certain way, it would, you know, it would be as though it's, it is reminiscent of, you know, the adage, whether it's Frederick Jameson or, or Zizek, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the, end of the world rather than the end of capitalism. There's something similar to that, you know, universalizing Oedipus as though it were, it's hard to think of any human nature or culture, whichever one, that wouldn't be Oedipal. I think that that's, that's another uh, benefit of, of the Hume book, right? Because if the mind is not given, if there can't be a psychology of, my, of mind, but only a psychology of the affections of the mind, right. what happens to the mind, that the mind is not pre-constituted, then that's the same thing, right? That the mind is not pre-constituted, Oedipus is not universal, and, and Oedipus is, doesn't explain anything, but actually is this myth that we tell ourselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This, the fiction, right? The, the narrative, the, the falsity that we want to believe, we kind of withhold our disbelief in that sense, right? Yeah. But I want to draw your attention to the last line of this paragraph, kind of the reverse here. Dilla says, we condemn the parents who prefer strangers to their own children. This is obviously within the regime of Oedipus. What is repressed is extending our love or what have you to the two strangers, right? Due to well, our partiality it, by time and space, I guess. Yeah. That plays a role, obviously. It is interesting. We condemn parents who prefer strangers to their own children. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is a way of nicely, succinctly summarizing partiality in Hume's sense, right? That it's precisely because of that, precisely because there is partiality that, that society or collective existence becomes a problem in the philosophical sense, right? Becomes something to, to be thought through. And I think that that's why um, this belief and invention is, is important. We just saw kind of the belief part where we believe that mommy and daddy are these, are these, uh, these global persons who, uh, who deserve love more than, than others. That's just something that we kind of take as a, as a given. As a given, yeah, yeah. And because it to, works. <laughs> it has utility, to, right? And one of the utilities that we may not even calculate is the fact that if we were to act as though family shouldn't be loved more than than others. And I said to you the other day, we you know, we get to choose our own families. 
And I think that on the one hand, while that's true, I think that's not the general sense of true, right? Of, of what people believe. If we were to prefer strangers over our own children, we would run. Even if we actually felt that, we may not express that to others because others would probably judge us for that, right? right others very would, true. would, would yeah. condemn us. Or even so, like in in my situation, you know, my father being in hospice care and you know nearing the end of his life, the expectation is that I should care about. Him, yeah. Right. Regardless of what has transpired within our interpersonal history, etc., I should set yeah. those things aside. That is the sort of moral position, let's say. But what I think yeah. is interesting here, this little bit goes to that too, is obviously this is not anything particularly groundbreaking with regard to egoism and how egoism can have an altruistic element to it. He talks about how thinking of the position of the husband, do they not bestow the largest part of their fortunes on the pleasures of their wives, the education of their children, reserving the smallest portion for their own proper use and entertainment. So kind of saying, I guess the moral regime of the father is to be kind of have a certain selflessness, but that selflessness is also the other side of it is that it is there's an egoism because of the proximity to the family that you're libidinally invested in, etc., but I don't know what the mechan what's the like mechanism that animates that. What's the mechanism that animates the partiality or Yeah, the mechanism that are that yeah, activates the partiality towards those that are closest to us. I think that this is one of the words that Deleuze seizes upon. It's tendency, right? Right, and yeah, I guess that's true, right? We have these tendencies to be partial. And this is why jurisprudence for Deleuze is important, as opposed to something abstract like universal rights or human rights. As nice as that is, and as in a certain way important as that is, at least to frame certain things, moving from case to case is on a case-by-case basis, inventing on a case-by-case basis is kind of what jurisprudence is. And it's that invention, that, that tendency to invent and the use of the understanding, right? Which is what we're inquiring into. That's what Hume supposedly is inquiring into is to help to correct that tendency. And the way I think about it is kind of like the Kleinemann, right? Like there is a natural swerve of our inclination tending towards ourselves and those closest to us, right? Family, etc. And it's precisely in inventing society, if you will, one can try to swerve or incline that tendency a little broader and extend it a little a little more. Obviously, that's that's difficult in practice, and that's why right. I think Deleuze is interested in jurisprudence. You know, because on the one hand, I think this is why Deleuze will distinguish our instincts of partiality, but also he'll distinguish between law, which is meant to kind of negatively curtail and limit those instincts versus what he calls institution. And it's an institution that he sees a positive means of a positive means of of sort of expanding our partiality. Yeah. It is interesting too, that he brings up drive as well as part of that discussion. That's Bundes's translation. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So this is in chapter two, mostly when Bundes doesn't really indicate what he's doing, but he starts translating tendency as drive. 
Presumably because it's being talked about in the context of instincts. But what's difficult is that in the 40s and 50s, when this language of tendency was going on, yes, in psychoanalysis, even Lacan uses in the earlier writings this language of tendance, you know, more or less being substitutable for tree. It's later that Polsian becomes like the accepted French terminology. It's really like in the in the 60s, in the early 60s, maybe the late 50s even, that, that that becomes kind of a standard translation of drive. So while I don't think that Bundes is incorrect to do it, I wish he would have pointed it out for the readers and maybe given some reasoning behind it, because it's not very clear that Deleuze is necessarily bringing in all of the psychoanalytic stuff. He doesn't reference any psychoanalysis. Right, Obviously, yeah. that would be anachronistic to talk about <laughs> a thinker in the 1750s, you know, and it's obviously not Hume's language. So we have to be very careful in that second chapter when drive starts to get talked about. That is the same word tendency. And I would tend to, even if I think it works fine in the translation, I would rather it be just tendency. Because psychoanalysis is not in question. You know, Hume is not doing a psychoanalysis when he's thinking of the psychology of the affections of the mind. It can have resonances with psychoanalysis, and that would be its own episode and own interest, but we shouldn't unduly uh, mix these jargons. I'm not, like, uh, criticizing you. I just I just wanted to make that No, clear. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, I think that's super important to understand so that it does eliminate some confusion um, yeah. that he's directly referencing something like Freud's drive, per se. It's not clear that he is. And to make that translation choice, that is a choice, I think it's imposing a little bit. As you saw, and as, as the readers can see, psychoanalysis is not brought up. It's not in question. There's no citations of Freud, Lacan, no mention. Just because Deleuze had, starts talking about instincts, I think that that's, that's kind of a, you're mixing jargons because Hume will call reason an instinct. Yeah. Hume has that language. Can we talk a bit further about reason as drive and how that, or not drive, as a instinct rather, <laughs> mm -hmm. and how that works? I think you might have already done it, but apologies if, you, no, if I'm I repeating mean, this here. This is on page 30. I'll just read you a little bit. Let me just say this real quick. So like in the context of problematics and problems being an impetus to thought or something like that, a gen mm -hmm. genesis of thought, that kind of makes sense. But as an instinct, like we're sort of almost to get to the like existential position we're in the world or even Heidegger, like we're thrown into the world mm -hmm. where we confront problems in the world. Those problems cause us to think and so forth. So in that sense, I could kind of see how it is a kind of the attempt to, re well, I don't know. That seems like I'm presupposing something a priori relative to reason. Right. I think that, um, the, but do you kind of get my line of thought at least? Do I need to flesh that out for you a little bit better at all? Uh, if you feel like it, please. Again, given this thrownness into the world where we are forced to encounter problems relative to needs, desires, etc., that being the genesis of of thought. But I guess that's also, is there a distinction between thought and reason? I feel like there probably is. For Hume, reason is the manner in which the passions, right, which are also a part of our 
or psychical being, if you will. It's a type of reason, I suppose you could even argue, maybe. That reason is a way of reflecting on or modifying the passions, right? It's a way of, I think about it this way, where, you know, we can immediately react, have a knee-jerk reaction, and not go by way of reflection, and, and many people... I think yeah, a lot I of emotions to, right. yeah. to dominate them. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, we can or like you're, in a, you're in an argument and you say something without thinking, like you know, your passion yeah. overwhelms your mind's ability to regulate your intensity, yeah. etc. Yeah. I, I think I think reason is, you know, it, it's not like um, it's not like this pre-given faculty is in Kant where it has a specific role, you know, the regulative ideas and all this stuff. Reason is just, reason may become a faculty if, in Deleuze's language, but it, it, it only becomes so through the association of ideas and the resonance of the passions. And so reason is kind of like, I think Hume calls it a calm determination. Let me, let me read you this, this passage. Sure, yeah. Though, because the whole discourse about reason and what Deleuze tries to seize upon is that Hume is countering sort of the rationalists who turn reason, whether, whether they think of it as, as a faculty, which is its own thing, or... What Deleuze will take Hume's critique of rationalism as reason as this kind of given, this pre-given faculty, he'll take it as a critique of representation. So this is just backdrop for this quote. So this is uh, page 30. Is this the first? I think it's the first chapter. I mean, it makes sense because we can't see, we can't interrogate things in themselves. Right. So Hume's philosophy is a sharp critique of representation. It does not elaborate a critique of relations but rather a critique of representations, precisely because representations cannot present relations. And this is the theme throughout the book is relations are external to their terms. Going back to the quote, by making representation into a criterion, by placing ideas within reason, rationalism expects ideas to stand for something which cannot be constituted within experience or be given in an idea without contradiction. The generality of the idea, the existence of the object, and the content of the terms always universal, necessary, and true. Rationalism has inferred mental determinations to external objects, taking away thereby from philosophy the meaning and the intelligibility of practice and of the subject. The fact is, though, that the mind is not reason. Reason is an affection of the mind. In this sense, reason will be called instinct, habit, or nature. Quote, and this is Deleuze quoting Hume, Quote, we have found reason to be nothing but a general calm determination of the passions founded on some distant view or reflection. And let me just finish the next paragraph. It's really short. Reason is a kind of feeling. Consequently, just as the method of philosophy goes from the absence of an idea to the presence of an impression, similarly, the theory of reason moves also from a kind of skepticism to a kind of positivism. It moves from a skepticism of reason to a positivism of feeling, in which case the latter includes reason as a reflection of feeling in the qualified mind. You can kind of see that it's through reflection that the understanding, or here called reason, and I don't really think there's a sharp distinction between reason and understanding for Hume, as there is in Kant. As useful as it is in Kant's system, and I think Kant does a lot with it, and it's very fascinating, the faculties that Kant creates. And as Nietzsche says, like, and all the post-Kantians, you know, it was all the rage to, to create new faculties. You know, for Hume, imagination, reason, understanding, they're all the, the mind that is, as it is constituted by the affections. It's just taking particular points of view on the mind or particular 
ways in which the mind functions. It's just focusing on on a different function of the mind. You know, when we say, you know, imagination or because imagination is the collection of impressions, right? The understanding makes distinctions and takes that in different collection in the imagination and tries to distinguish and correct certain ideas that follow from the imagination spontaneous work, right? And I think reason does something similar, except now it's it seems to be we're using the ideas not to necessarily correct knowledge, which understanding might be more about is proper understanding of cause and effect, knowing we can't know the cause and only we can only know about causes from their effects, not know the cause of the cause, etc. So the understanding may be more related to correcting knowledge, whereas it seems reason is more about correcting passions or maybe navigating, right, and funneling the passions. This is why he brings up, uh, Deleuze brings up the quote that Hume has where, fuck, who were the two Roman guys that he distinguishes? Hume's quoting Machiavelli and he says, uh, Fabius was cautious, Scipio was enterprising, both succeeded because the situation of the Roman affairs during the command of each was peculiarly adapted to his genius. But both would have failed had these situations been reversed. He is happy whose circumstances suit his temper, but he is more excellent who can suit his temper to any circumstances. That, to me, like really is a great example of the function of reason, if you will. And I think in that sense... That's why reason is an instinct. It's an instinct because it, I think Nietzsche would even say reason and and the passions, they're both forces. Sometimes reason wins out and is able to dominate the forces of the passions and funnel them and suit them to the circumstances, right? And so in in that sense, you you know, I know he doesn't say this here, Deleuze doesn't say this here, but one could think of reason as a kind of calm, and this is why when Hume calls it a calm determination, Mm -hmm. That gives it an aspect of a passion, right? That it's, even though it's calm, it's able to modify and modulate the passions. And in that sense, it can itself be ranked among them. At least I would say that. And I think that's also why it's, it's a habit. You know, we could be in a habit of being temperate or moderate or immoderate, right? <laughs> I mean, like, that's, um, but I think that's, that's where circumstances takes on, what is it, in chapter five or six, the Liz will really hit upon the circumstances, not just for reason, but just for the whole, it's really the circumstances that determine the affections of the mind, right? And um, so contingency. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And um, it's the contingencies of the encounters that affect us. That's for Hume how we, we begin through what is it resemblance contiguity and causality those are the three sort of factors that sort of prompts the mind to begin to generalize make these general ideas based on the encounters we've had and extrapolate from them but Hume's very clear right it's that we should note that this is an artifice this is these are fictions and however useful they may be we should we should at least be aware of the fact that to call this knowledge in a way that would distinguish it from fiction is itself a fiction, right? 
there is a sense, and Nietzsche picks up on this too a lot, I think, right? Nietzsche's very clear how the true world finally became a fable. You know, you get rid of the apparent world, the true world isn't left behind. It's only in the opposition of appearance that truth has its standing. And so if we think of knowledge as this elaborate and perpetually corrected fiction, I think that that is what empiricism kind of means in that sense, right? Like there's a sense in which the scientific method incorporates this into it, into itself, right? Where experiments have to be repeatable and verify in order to be verifiable in order mm -hmm. for verification to take place. And so you can think of the subject then, or the mind is constituted by the affections as this ongoing trial and error, as this ongoing experimental verification, which doesn't necessarily mean that, um, I think it changes our, our way of, of viewing fictions, right? This is why you brought up the power of the false earlier. You know, it's precisely that which is false and fictional. Nietzsche says, if we got rid of all of that, we would actually be doing a detriment to life because life needs these fictions and should embrace them rather than judging them abstractly against a criterion of truth that is itself this yeah. metafiction, right? <laughs> yeah, so in, in contrast to Baudrillard, who does the exact the, the, the reversal of this, where the, the simulacra, the powers of the false, are what prevent us from grasping the true or whatever or like and that being some type of negation of something perhaps yeah it, but maybe yeah, with, i'm not using negation correctly i mean with Baudrillard, who fucking <laughs> knows man I mean, but with, it's funny because i was even thinking like they kind of had a cer certain alignment here based on the simulacra the false in terms of its power at least although Baudrillard abuses the negative as opposed to deleuze as the positive aspect of of yeah, the with, false you know, with Baudrillard, I think so much of what he says is correct, but it's the tenor. It's the tenor of the language where it's as though he wants to only hold on to nostalgia so as to wring some of the, use it in order to elaborate the desperateness of our situation. Right? I feel like that's where Baudrillard, I don't think he's necessarily nostalgic. I think he's using this nostalgia as this fucking hammer to like, or, or this, uh, he's, he's using it as this violin to wring some of the, the cringe emotion in us, right? I can never tell with Baudrillard. I, I don't, I don't, you know, some of it feels nihilistic. I don't know if that's true. It's definitely the nostalgia in his works and how he uses the nostalgia as this weapon that... Here's the thing, though. It's like, I mean, even Kant is saying, effectively, reason alone is not sufficient to... Yep. to like, if, let's say, when it bring in Marx with regard to... You know, and here's something, too, that I feel like is in the book is like we create the world with our imaginations. We can create a different we can create something different with our imaginations. But Kant is effectively saying, OK, reason alone is not sufficient to maybe I'm stepping too far to say, like, reason is sufficient to create change or create in the world. Right. Because the passions are right. The powers of the false are far more difficult like you can't really always impact them with reason do we reason the powers of the false how do we understand the powers of the false to take advantage of that necessity of fiction to do something better i suppose is the question i'm thinking 
I could see where you're going with that. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's, what is it? Concepts, concepts without intuition are empty. Their concepts are these kind of formal regulative functions, whereas intuition without concepts is kind of chaotic, right? He, what he says, they're blind, which I think he means chaotic in a sense. They're blind for us because they blind us. They don't have form you will. You can kind of see how reason would be a way of sort of correcting our our fictions, if you will. And correcting here, I think, is correcting in line with utility. And utility are determined by the circumstances. And obviously, the kind of utility we see in the world today, and the pandemic makes this very clear, you know, where those at the bottom are losing out on trillions of dollars of wealth, and those trillions are ending up at the very richest, right? So obviously utility and partiality is very slanted if we consider it from an economic point of view. And there is no reason why that type of workings can't be rethought and reworked. You know, we can imagine the role of money and the role of debt being these, these, these fictions. That doesn't make them any less real. They're very powerful though. It's like, how do we how do we break those illusions? Because it seems like the desire is to, there's like a gravity or something that draws us to these fictions. You know, I'm thinking I was talking to you a little bit about the kind of film metaphor for continuity, which also made me think about, you know, the film, uh, what was it? The Prestige, where talking about the magician and how there's this sort of rational understanding that the world is like the material world is harsh and unforgiving but whenever we're presented with this illusion we desire the belief in some kind of transcendent thing so that's why magic works because there's always that gap in our understanding in terms of rationality and reason that we kind of have to fill in but there's something about that desire to be fooled right by the magician even though we like we can again we consciously can understand magic isn't real (laughs) and at least in this the sense that we you know an illusion of let's say under that stricture so that we know that it's an illusion and yet our perceptions of that are so strong of a force that we can't we're you know what i mean we're still impacted by by that by that illusion Again, that's belief and invention, right? There's we choose to believe. And we choose that, to believe the world has to be this way, and if anything shakes, the, but it, it's weird that there's such resistance, right? And I guess that even goes back to what I was talking about earlier with Dan about how do these new things get regularized, right? How do they get yeah. incorporated into the kind of simulacrum, into the into the fiction, so that they become they lose their sort of potency in a way, but that's kind of counterintuitive because the fiction feels like it's what has the potency and reason or rationality. It has some potency, but it's nowhere near as forceful. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely true. I mean, and... maybe this is also what why Deleuze kind of latches onto the idea of the schizophrenic because the schizophrenic is resistant to fiction in a way, <laughs> even though it's, there's the delirium that Schraber has. I mean, can we say that his perception is any more, any less fictional than 
our own sort of illusory experience or perception of experience, you know? As long as we're not talking about the schizophrenic as a clinical entity, maybe as a conceptual persona, right? Right. You know, schizophrenia as a process versus a sort of medical condition. But, you know, from what we've been talking about, there's a great, great quote here. You know, when the mind becomes a system through the association of ideas, etc., Deleuze says, this system is a delirium. When fiction becomes principle, reflection goes on reflecting, but it can no longer correct. It is thus thrown into delirious compromises. From the point of view of philosophy, the mind is no longer anything but delirium and madness. You know, if the mind is manifested as a delirium, it is first it is because it is, first of all, essentially madness. And Hume has a quote that kind of gets to what you were talking about just a second ago. I mean, even because yeah. madness gets normalized in a in a way, right? <laughs> like yeah, the madness exactly. of capitalism, it is a mad thing to do, right? To repetitively or even a, a, a symptom, right? Like it, it's kind of there is a madness in re- repeating this harmful, this thing that traumatizes us. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Here's a quote from Hume that, that kind of gets to your point. The understanding when it acts alone, according to its most general principles, entirely subverts itself and leaves not the lowest degree of evidence in any proposition, either in philosophy or common life. Because the understanding, its function is to correct and to go on correcting. If it functions alone, right, it can only keep correcting its corrections. <laughs> and, but yeah, this last quote, I, I won't quote any more after this, because there has to be some kind of, I'm going to quote from the this, this second paragraph and then go back. Madness is human nature related to the mind, just as good sense is the mind related to human nature. Each one is the reverse of the other. But Deleuze says, we have seen three critical states of the mind. Indifference and fancy are the situations proper to the mind, independently of the external principles which fix it through the association of ideas. Madness is the contradiction in the mind between these principles which affect it and the fiction which it affirms as a principle. Delirium is the system of fictional reconciliations between principles and fictions. The only resource and positivity offered to the mind is nature or practice, moral practice, and based on the image of the latter, practice of the understanding. Instead of referring nature to the mind, the mind must be referred to nature, et cetera, et cetera. So I think this is why when we go deep into Hume's empiricism on a theoretical level, yeah, the mind is, is madness. And as you said, Capitalism is our special delirium, et cetera, right? That's why he's calling for moral practice, that philosophy has to be a theory of what we do, what we are doing, and not of what there is. Because if we, if philosophy were a theory of what there is, there is capitalism. Nobody doubts that, right? It functions. It is functioning. Right. I forget who is it, Zizek, that's like, you know, capitalism works or something. I forget this yeah. context or uh, whatever, but. And so to ask about what there is, is a very empty question. And it doesn't really force a problem. But to ask what we are doing, what we do, and that includes a history too, right? I mean, like- Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, absolutely. Dulles says, like, in order to be a psychologist, one first has to be a historian, a sociologist, et cetera, right? And I think that that's, that's true here, right? Because there is a history of how capitalism came to be. And I think that's why chapter three of Anti-Oedipus is so important, right? This history of, of different sociuses. And, you know, all of that too, I think it's precisely given that madness is the state of the mind once we have come to accept that we are always sort of reconciling these fictions, right? For example, causality. 
I think for yeah. Hume, that's that's a huge, even though it is a fiction to assume one knows the cause from the effect, one can always kind of. Because when we do, th when, when we actually do things in the world, we get a, we get a feedback. I mean, this is what empiricism is, right? Is like, is the testing aspect, testing our reason of what we've reasoned out. My question, I think, ultimately was going back to the whole Spinoza question, which is like, why do we paper over our own our own uh, servitude? We believe our servitude is this is the way the world is. This is the way that history works. Why do we buy that story, even if we know that it's bullshit? Or we can be shown evidence. We can be shown evidence of, of the opposite is not sufficient to get people to change what their beliefs, I suppose, would be the better way to get what I'm talking about. You know, this is where thinking, believing, inventing, all of this is a much, much, much more social thing than we are led to believe, than we are made to think, because we can talk about, quote unquote, the mind as though it's as though I have mine, you have yours, and that's all individual. And while that, that may be true from a biological standpoint in terms of individuation, I think that for Simon Dunn, for example, and I think that Deleuze would agree with this, you know, we can think about ourselves as involved in these physical, biological, psychical individuations, but, but these are all sort of intertwined, especially when we get to the psychical level, when we think about the psychical level, we're inextricably intertwined in these trans-individual collective individuations. And I think that that's why, obviously, on our own, it's hard to, to affect any change in the, in the status quo and the dominant right. state of things. It would obviously be on a collective level. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's why our madness has to, first and foremost, be moral practice, as Deleuze says, right? That's not something we just do individually. We, that's something we do collectively. Obviously, as a part, we, we form a part of it. But even those inclinations and desires on the individual level are never just our own. They're always kind of factoring in not just our relation to others, but our inextricable sort of motivation and, and impetus, our partiality, if you will, right? right, right how, yeah, it's, exactly. how it's modulated. So, yeah, I mean, that's where I would go with it. You know, I think in French it's interesting, right? Because the word for the mind in French is l'esprit right so it's like spirit so throughout the book you know Deleuze is talking about spirit and it's very natural for them I assume but it's kind of interesting just to think about it right that that the that I think in that sense I feel like spirit gets to what I'm trying to say about this trans individual aspect of mentality right that mind feels way too individualistic in a certain way that spirit already kind of has this transformative aspect to it, this aspect that Deleuze is trying to eke out through, uh, through Hume's philosophy. To say that spirit, there's no psychology of spirit, there's only psychology of the affections of spirit. There's something interesting about this, right? Because spirit already has this, this kind of notion where it, it can and is in this constant transformation. And I'm not just talking about Hegelian Geist, although that's a part right. of it, right? Yeah, yeah. Spirit is, in like in the Christian Trinity, is the mediating, transformative, connective right, the link. Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. So, 
you know, it's just kind of interesting to think about. I know it's a linguistic thing, and I'm not really just trying to be nominalist here, but there's something about mm-hmm. the the language of spirit that is that is very interesting just to just to bring it back into right as when talking about mind and um we should really think about it in a much more collective sense i think deleuze if you wrote this book 20 years later that would have been post guachery or 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 with guachery you can imagine that would have been much more but i do think that it's not too hard or too far of a, a shot to to think about this stuff in a collective sense which is why I think Deleuze talks about Hume as a as a psychosociologist rather than a just a just like a psychologist of yeah of the individual even though he can be that too I don't think he's leaving it out because he's not just concerned what what is it Deleuze says there's no theoretical subjectivity there's only practical subjectivity and practice already implies you're not Robinson Crusoe I mean even in Robinson Crusoe there were a couple others on the island at some point, but you're not, you're not, the, you're not some isolated corpuscle. It is funny that Deleuze describes him that way, because I think that would be a great articulation of why I sort of enjoy Hume. You know, I've mentioned before that even go, just going back to my intro to philosophy class, Hume was one of the thinkers that I most enjoyed, definitely above Kant <laughs> mm-hmm. and some of the other thinkers. But yeah, I kind of really liked uh, what Hume was doing, at least with the skepticism. And again, I think that, you know, obviously that colored my kind of postmodern skeptic phase, let's say, coming from this kind of fundamentalist background of, you know, all of these things that we perceive as these transcendental or transcendent properties, et cetera, that explain everything in this kind of fictional whole, right? Like that's, <coughs> that's a very, it's a very powerful story. Yeah. And then when you bring that into question and start really poking at the presuppositions in that fiction, it begins to fall apart. This is good. And I, I feel like I need to quote one last thing. I said I wasn't. <laughs> no, it's fine. dude. But you Please. brought up Kant and I thought that um, we should bring up Deleuze distinguishing transcendental versus empirical critique. So he says, and I, I'll, I'll read until I feel like I, I <laughs> shut, shut up. But, um, so this is chapter five, which is which is where the. The book gets its title. The chapter title is Empiricism and Subjectivity. And that's the same title as the chapter. Deleuze says, the problem is as follows. How can a subject surpassing the given be constituted in the given? Undoubtedly, the subject itself is given. Undoubtedly, that which transcends the given is also given in another way, in another sense. This subject who invents and believes is constituted inside the given in such a way that it makes the given itself a synthesis and a system. This is what we must explain. In this formulation of the problem, we discover the absolute essence of empiricism. We could say that philosophy in general has always sought a plan of analysis in order to undertake and conduct the examination of the structures of consciousness, critique, and to justify the totality of experience. Initially, it is a difference in plan that opposes critical philosophies. We embark upon a transcendental critique when, having situated ourselves on a methodologically reduced plan that provides an essential certainty, a certainty of essence, we ask, how can there be a given? How can something be given to a subject, and how can the subject give something to itself? Here, the critical requirement is that of a constructivist logic which finds its model in mathematics. The critique is empirical when, having situated ourselves in a purely eminent point of view, which makes possible a description whose rule is found in determinable hypotheses and whose model is found in physics, we ask, how is the subject constituted in the given? 
The construction of the given makes room for the constitution of the subject. The given is no longer given to a subject. Rather, the subject constitutes itself in the given. Hume's merit lies in the singling out of this empirical problem in its pure state and its separation from the transcendental and the psychological. This is kind of what we've been talking about, and to a certain extent, right, that, you know, this is why Deleuze always, I mean, even from, from this book on, if anything, this question of subjects being constituted rather than being constitutive, I think that's, that's like the big thing for Deleuze, right, is starting with a self or a subject to explain the syntheses of whether it be time or thinking, etc. I think that for him is, is wrong. The subject is born, well, you said it earlier, right? Problems kind of generate thinking within thought, right? Or generate thought within thinking, if you want to even say it that way, right? That there is a genesis, even if Deleuze makes clear Hume kind of avoids a genetic root, right? Because it would beg a lot of questions. In any case, the subject is not pre-given. We have to understand by the subject being given, it's not pre-given. It's not, whether it be like in platonic reminiscence and reincarnation, right? Or being made in the image of God, something like this, right? Because we should understand critiquing the dogmatic, moral, orthodox image of thought as critiquing the image of, of a God-made, yeah, of a God-made man. Of man being made in God, God's image begs a lot of questions. And I think it's against that apotheosis, if you will, but also against this, you know, against this idea that the self, any more than God, can explain the origin of things or consciousness or blah, 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 right? Reminiscent also of uh, the Zizek Ruta Hamza <clears throat> book on reading Hegel about Hegel's critique of religion, right? It's kind of this, a lot of this is covering that same ground to some degree, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Man creates God in his own image and then for sort of forgets or like right, that, right. it's obscure <clears throat> or whatever. And I mean, that goes to how the true world became the false world a bit probably as well, I'm assuming, uh, along, or, or along those lines. It's related. It, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. definitely related. This is the Feuerbach critique that Marx takes further. I mean, you kind of already mentioned that, if you will, Marx's thesis on Feuerbach with the, what is it, the 11th, the last one, you know, it's not about philosophy has always interpreted the world. Right, yeah, exactly. It's, it's no longer about interpreting or explaining. It's about transforming. I mean, that even goes to the university discourse, too, like if you want to bring in Lacan, right? Because it's the production of knowledge, right? The production of knowledge alone isn't isn't enough to do anything but allow the system to persist, right? I think Hume would agree with what you just said. It's, you know, if knowledge is to be corrected and if that's the role of the understanding in correcting ideas, etc., it's not necessarily for a university discourse first and foremost it's not for its own sake you know it's got to be for the sake of some sort of utility this is why i think that last chapter Deleuze even goes so far as to talk about utilitarianism i know it's it's very much out of favor but i think in the way in which uh Deleuze is talking about it he also brings up utilitarianism chapter two this is where fucking i feel like utilitarianism drops. though is going to come back 
because I think scarcity is going to become a far, you know, with climate change, scarcity is going to necessitate that. When Deleuze last brings it up, he says, the utility which designates the relation between means and ends, and this is why I don't necessarily like the translation of finality as purposiveness. I'm not a huge fan of it, but between me, uh, utility also designates the relation between individuality and the historical situation. Utilitarianism is as much an evaluation of historical acts as it is a theory of instrumental action. We do not call things only useful, but also passions, feelings, and characters. Some of this translation is bad, but you see what I mean? Like we got to reason, we got to passions. We already kind of covered that as, as being useful. We also talked about fictions as being useful. And so I think in the sense in which Deleuze is talking about utilitarianism, having, we shouldn't forget the historical dimension to it. This goes to um, that quote I had about, it's great if, if your mood already fits the circumstances, but it's better if you can tailor your mood not to pun on myself, but if you can fit your mood to uh, any circumstance. And I think that that's kind of the utilitarianism that Deleuze is talking about rather than a sort of... Base. Well, maybe it's better to... Well, I was going to say maybe that's a more of a pragmatic aspect, but I don't know. I guess maybe that doesn't make sense. No, I think it does. I mean, I think that's why one of Deleuze's teachers, John Wall, sees Hume as leading up to and through William James is because there is a kind of pragmatism. I mean, you could, you could think about, I mean, I was thinking about the Gum Jabbar test as an example, right? Because instead of reacting via the passions, right? Because they say in the Dune, right? That your instinct will be to remove your hand from the box. So it's about becoming, obtaining a level of self-awareness to understand your passions and being able to modulate the passions with reason, with rationality, to mm -hmm. achieve an end, right? To achieve a goal. Yeah, that's good. This pragmatic stuff is very much, like I said, it, the Bene Gesserit are like this to a T, right? They do what works, you know? If something doesn't work, they don't do it. The Fremen as well, they're very practical people. I'm even thinking back to like the situation where Thufur Hawat or whatever, he has a bunch of wounded people and there's a friend in there. He's like, well, look, these dudes are dead. Do you have enough water for them? Oh, you don't have enough water for them. You should probably kill them and harvest their water. You're in this situation. Like the survival of the tribe is, you know, more important or something like that. I may cut that out. actually. No, it's good. It's good. It's interesting. I was just looking over where Deleuze at the, in the last chapter and this kind of relates on the one hand, the subject subject is constituted by the ideas, the association of ideas, right? But on the other hand, there is a sense in which Deleuze brings out the subjection of the subject. There's a there's a subjugating or a subjection of the subject right. when he says, in a word, we are not only a subject of the ideas and the association of ideas, right? We are also something else as well. We are also a self which is always a slave to its origin. And I think that that's why it gets back to not just reason and modulating the passions as you brought up with the Ganjabar test, which I think is a good example of this, but also the way that ideas can lead to other ideas through association, but the slightest error in one of the first related downward, it's like a game of telephone, it just amplifies, right? And that's why 
you know, the understanding has this corrective aspect of trying to temper our fictions because there is a sense in which, you know, for Deleuze, as Hume kind of points out too, the errors are compacted ad infinitum with the fictions and they can sort of take advantage of the madness and create this fucked up world, if you will, and create this fucked up view of things leading to all sorts of illusions and fancies, whether it be God or, or the world or the self. <laughs> I mean, I think that's why Deleuze says, you know, we are subject, but also self. But, you know, for Deleuze, he'll make out like the self is, you know, there are these larval subjects and swarming and teeming with these multiplicities and these forces that we think of having a sort of identity, right? We think of having a proper name that attaches to them, right? As though that gets us back into uh, discussing what we kind of already discussed, which was the schizophrenia as a process. Yeah. This point at which one no longer feels the need to say I mm-hmm. and to like attach a, because in a certain sense, that's kind of what Deleuze is going to with the subject being constituted in the given or as mind is um, the very fact that insofar as it is constituted, it is not sort of sovereign in its own domain as Freud himself will kind of talk about the ego. We like to think of the ego or the self as sort of sovereign and as in control when that is far from true, right? We're, we're sort of teeming with these partialities and tendencies and drives, if we want to use that language, right? Right. We're, we don't think ourselves into thinking per se, right? It kind of, it kind of happens now mm-hmm. because it's become a habit or something like that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely true. Now we can reflect on thought, I suppose, in a metacognition, right? Like in a meta way, thinking about thinking, but that's not the same thing as thinking. It's just one aspect of it, but not, not the whole. Yeah. There's other examples of that kind of relation, I suppose, too. This statement, there is no intensive thought. I like, I said, I'm a little bit fuzzy. I get hazy with extension and intention. He says fiction is an extension on page 82, that it's a principle that, can, that can't be overcome. Well, I thought it was. The fuck? I know he said knowledge is not intensive. I don't remember him saying that about thought, but I could be wrong. Maybe I, I meant... Uh... Yeah, there is no intensive knowledge, all possible knowledge, and ex- is extensive in between parts. This is just kind of following Hume. I mean, all he's saying about the extensive knowledge is going from, from known to unknown, going from sort of thinking of knowledge as composed of these parts. And we haven't talked much about justice, because I think that's kind of an interesting question, is like, if there's sort of this difficulty or this impasse relative to the particular interests and aggregate interests or something like that, how do we develop a, a justice Right, because we do, we have to, we have to create a justice, a concept of justice, first to be able to, and then we mobilize that concept somehow. Right. Yeah. This is what I was trying to get at a little bit with the uh, with law and uh, institution with jurisprudence. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you can see here too. He's pitting Hume against the contract theorists, right? Like, and he's kind of, kind of pointing out that that justice. 
and what he'll later call talk about in terms of jurisprudence, you know, is about this case by case basis for sort of, um, you know, for inventing, if you will, society for instituting it. So I think that for Deleuze, this is why there's not some sort of, there's not these natural rights that then get contractualized and set into an agreement beforehand, right? Yeah, right? Exactly. This has, there has to be this inventive social act that involves, that obviously isn't necessarily smooth or, or pretty, but neither is instituting contracts because we know, you know, even if the social contract is this useful fiction that we see someone like Rousseau uh, bring up, he at the same time is like, how is it that there is inequality? How does that jive with with a social contract? The inequality is already kind of like baked into the system. You know, that becomes a problem. Yeah, inequality is taken as a given. That's weird, though, because at the same time, this particularity or like viewing everything as its own case by case basis. I don't know. There seems like to be a, there's a contradiction there, but maybe I'm just not thinking Deleuze enough, you know, whenever it comes to justice, if every case is different, then that seems to if every case is its own specific singularity. Then how can we have a justice based on everything being a, a singular case? Because if inequality is a given relative to capitalist society, let's say, or modernity or something like that, right? We take for granted that we are, but then again, I guess we don't in a sense, like there's all these contradictions relative to, you know, all men are created equal. I mean, that goes to law and the way that law excludes, like universals exclude something. Yeah. I mean, all men are created equal is, is a belief that supposedly one holds in order to invent a democracy and invent like a justice too right because if the well i guess that would mean that the justice is impartial always right but if justice is impartial then it is eliminating just like science eliminates the subjective so that's a contradiction in the institution of law because how can an institution of law be impartial when every single case is particular? I mean, I think that this is, again, the, <laughs> the difference between law and an institution. If law is essentially limiting, whereas, you know, our partiality, whereas institutions are sort of swerving and using the partiality's amplitude to form collectivities, there is a sense in which... I mean, in terms of justice, again, I think that's the language she uses in the in the text, right? That justice is is invented. That's definitely the impression that I understood based on, and it sort of follows, certainly. Justice is an artificial virtue. Man is an inventive species. The essential task is to constitute a whole of morality, for justice is a schema, and the schema is the very principle of society. Quote, a single act of justice considered in itself may often be contrary to the public good and tis only the concurrence of mankind in a general scheme or system of action which is advantageous. Um, question is no longer about transcendence, but rather about integration. You're right to, to bring that up. I mean, I think that there's a difference between the singularity of the case and the frameworks within which justice can be adjudicated. I think different societies would have in different historical circumstances and situations would each have their own method of, of integrating. Right. And, um, 
you know, there is a sense in which a lot of times there is this way in which the law can be quote unquote blind and ignore circumstances and mete out justice in a way that feels unjust because it ignores the circumstances surrounding the case. Right. So it's obviously a fine line. And, and I think that that's, because that's my very question, because the universality of at least the institution of the law as it exists per, for us and in our terms means that that's eliminating the subjective element, which eliminates the singularity, the uniqueness of that particular case. But it has utility, I suppose, in some regard, right? Like, I don't know, in the persistence I, of the social, persistence of social reproduction. Quote, the question is no longer how to specify the rule. And this gets to the G for gauche, the, the abecedaire that I brought up earlier and the horizon of, if you will, of partiality or mm-hmm. really impartiality as justice in a certain sense. The question is no longer how to specify the rule, but rather how to provide it with the vividness, which it lacks. The question is to no longer how to distribute, but how to reinforce and enliven justice. It was not enough then to single out by means of the imagination the possible situations of the extension of justice. This extension must itself now become a real situation. In an artificial way, the nearest must become the most distant, and the most distant, the nearest. This is the meaning of government. Human beings cannot change their natures. All they can do is to change their situation and render the observance of justice the immediate interest of some particular persons, and its violation, they're more remote. So, yeah, I mean, that is a whole... That is a whole question, and that goes into philosophy as a theory of what we do, if you think about it, right? How to make the the nearest um, the most remote and vice versa, right? right? How to make the most distant the nearest. I think that's why Deleuze says, you know, being on the left, you start at the most distant. You start at the horizon rather than you start at your own little burrow. And that's hard. I mean, that and that's, and that's hard. And sometimes it can Which easily is kind of. I mean, that's kind of interesting re- relative to this point you're always bringing up about Simon Doan and how you can't start from the individual. You can't start with individuation and get to, I forget the other half of it. <laughs> can't start from the individual and then work back to individuation, right? You can't start from the constituted term and get to the relation. As Deleuze says, you know, relations are external to the terms. I think it's very similar. You can't start from the constituted individual term and then work out to the relation. That... Okay, so let me just real quick. So in this case, could would justice be the term that I'm trying to start from? That uh, might be kind of half-cocked, but... No, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, if, if justice is this process of moving from abstraction to real situations, mm-hmm. you know, then I think that in that sense, insofar as it's singular, as you said, insofar as it's worked out case by case through jurisprudence then I think of it more as a process, right? Justice it's, as a process. Right. And it's when we think of it as something just to be, uh, that's pre-made and meant to be distributed. That's uh, when it, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I so mean, this that, is where the empiricism, like, or the, what it does so. part. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I think so. So yeah, justice isn't this transcendent thing. Justice is what we make. And in French, that, philosophy is a theory of what we do, that verb, fair, that would be the theory of what we do, make, theory of what we make, what we make of things. And men make the world, but they do not know what they make. Right. So let's get back on this with uh, 
with some cause stuff next week. We can probably stop there, I suppose. That'll wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Chair and Taylor Atkins. Next week, we'll be taking a look at Deleuze's book on Kant. So we'll see y'all next week. The very rules of evil, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in the block work orange.